This is Red Flag Radio. We're recording the show on Indigenous land, land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to our listeners. Um, as you all know, this is a revolutionary socialist podcast and we talk about a range of different topics and I would encourage you, if this is the first ever episode you've listened to of Red Flag Radio, to check out our um, back catalogue, which is growing, ever-growing. Um because we've got episodes that are um, some introductory discussions around Marxism and Marxist theory. We've got some historical eyewitness accounts of amazing struggles in history. We've got some discussions on theory and philosophy, on the environment and climate change. Um, So a whole bunch of different things that um, hopefully you will find interesting. So have a look. And if you enjoy any of the episodes, we really encourage you to share them around people you know uh, on your social media and rate and review on your podcast platform. We also have a Patreon, which you may already use to support us. And if you do, thank you so much for your contributions. And if you want to join those illustrious people, then patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast. That's all of my intro spiel. And let's get straight to this point because um, it's an urgent discussion that we're having today. And I should say that we're recording this episode in the evening of Wednesday, the 16th of June. So some things that we might be discussing will have probably changed by the time you've listened to it. Um, So that's where we are now. But a lot has been happening um, in this space around refugees. And I'm very uh, excited and um, appreciative of the time of Liz Walsh and Aaron Melvaganum who have joined us, who are both uh, just extraordinary refugee activists and advocates. And I'll introduce both of them before I start asking them questions. So Aaron uh, was born in Northern Sri Lanka and lived in a refugee camp as a child um, before coming to Australia as a 13-year-old unaccompanied refugee in 1997. And he ended up in Villawood Detention Centre and in 2011, founded the Tamil Refugee Council and um, for anyone who's been active around refugee rights and uh, the um, experience of Tamils in particular, you will be familiar with Aaron and anyone who's had the pleasure of hearing Aaron speak at a rally will um, know that kind of uh, impact that his experience has had on many of us, me and Liam and Liz included. Um, Incredible. And Liz Walsh, again, for anyone around the refugee rights movement will know, has been campaigning um, since the beginning of this decade, uh, this century, century, I should say, even two decades, we're into the 21st century, um, and is more recently the Assistant Secretary of the Victorian Socialists and was a candidate in the council elections, narrowly missing out um, a seat in Maribyrnong local council. And of course, if you read Red Flag newspaper, you'll have seen pieces by Liz Walsh and um, you'll have seen her around a bunch of campaigns as an active revolutionary socialist. So welcome both of you, Aaron and Liz. Thank you for being here. Hello. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So we all know why we're here because there's been um, 
an increased interest in the story of a family of Tamil refugees, uh, Priya, Nadez, Kapika, and Tharanika, a Tamil family who were um, living in regional que- Queensland in the town of Biloela, um, and in March 2018 were ripped from their home by border force agents, put into mandatory detention first in Melbourne and then on Christmas Island, and have um, just been reunited uh, yesterday in Perth because of the hospitalisation of their four-year-old daughter um, and basically as a result of uh, neglect and uh, have now been told that they are going to be put into community detention rather than put back onto Christmas Island. And this has really sparked a quite incredible national conversation about their experience and the government's um, cruelty, really, to this family. Uh, it's been top of the news in Australia if you're listening internationally, and it has actually made international news as well. So sort of wanted to talk about it, what's happening with this case, but also what that says about the broader refugee kind of torture regime in Australia. So let's talk about this family first. And Aaron, I know you have connections with them Um do you want to just try to kind of sum up what's been happening in the last couple of weeks and tell us about how you know this family? Yes, I've been involved in this case uh, from day one uh, when the family was uh, taken from Billowilla, uh, brought to Melbourne Detention Centre. Uh, they were taken uh, from their home at 530 uh, in the morning, uh, involving 20 Border Force officers. When they were brought to Melbourne for the first two days, they were denied access to phone so that they can, uh, you know, talk to their friends in the community until they signed voluntary do- uh, deportation documents. Over the last uh, three years, so I came to know about this family um, after they were they signed the voluntary deportation documents and they were able to get in touch with the uh, community members. Um, and over the last three years, we've been fighting um, many, uh, you know, deportation attempts. Uh, the family has been moved uh, from one detention to another uh, for, uh, for the last uh, two years. Uh, they've been uh, kept on Christmas Island Detention Center. Um, you know, they were taken to Christmas Island after a failed uh, deportation attempt where we had a last-minute legal uh, injunction uh, which, uh, re- you know, led to them being removed uh, from the plane and, and they were taken to uh, Christmas Island. On Christmas Island, uh, the kids were uh, placed in a tiny little room um, the, the toilet was right next to their uh, room as well, and uh, and they would spend all day uh, in this tiny little room. They wouldn't even have a, a, a playing area. Um, you know, these were, uh, you know, Tarunika was eight months old when she was taken into detention. Now she's four years old, and likewise, Gobika was, I think, two years old, and now she's uh, around six years old. Um, and, and, you know, these kids have spent so much time in detention the the very most important years in their uh, life has been uh, wasted in detention centers and um, and you know and with this detention center there's been so many uh, issues uh, health wise and and mental health wise as well um, and as a result 
uh, Taronica, um, uh, you know, fell, became ill, uh, seriously ill. Uh, for 10 days, uh, she was denied any support uh, from uh, the, the Border Force um, and uh, the IHMS. Uh, and when she became seriously unwell to the point where uh, she needed to be airlifted, uh, to Perth Hospital because the hospital in uh, Christmas Island uh, wasn't good enough to treat her. Uh, so she was airlifted to Perth Hospital and um, the images of Tarunika crying on the hospital bed um, when, uh, you know, shocked the nation. And as a result, uh, there's been a lot of interest uh, from the media which has eventually led to, um, you know, led to uh, politicians uh, coming under intense uh, pressure uh, from the public, and and they have uh, moved them from uh, held detention to community detention, from one form of detention to another uh, with lesser restrictions than they were previously mm. under. Mm. That was an excellent summary. Yeah, I mean, mm. it's not like, um, you know, th there hasn't been public awareness of this family's experiences and, you know, uh, discussion around the cost. It's it's um, the, the cost of keeping them on detained on Christmas Island and so on. But I think it, you're right, those images of a girl crying in a hospital bed and then the story that came out about, you know, a mother saying... I just kept saying she's not okay, she's not okay, and, and these, uh, whoever it was, you know, the people supposedly looking after their well-being just keep saying, no, I think she's fine, she's probably just got the flu, just have some Panadol or whatever, she's seriously ill. That kind of, yeah, shocked people in a different way to all of the other stories so far. Um, Liz, you've been following this as well, obviously, and supporting the family since the beginning. What do you think? about the government's response and I guess most recently this idea that it's a big um, win to uh, be able to stay in Perth in community detention because a lot of people have sort of been saying, okay, well, now they're in Australia, that's done. What's your take on that? Well, I think uh, it is a win. It is a concession that the family are no longer on Christmas Island. Uh, Christmas Island was absolutely hellish for the family, you know, intense, intense surveillance. You know, Aaron just described the conditions uh, and how the, the the situation for the children, for the parents was deteriorating. So to get them off Christmas Island is a win and it was a hard fought for win. It really gives you a sense of how hard it is to have wins with this issue um, of refugee rights in Australia that, you know, 500,000 people have signed a petition in support of the Biloela family a whole community, a whole town, Biloela, have, have been campaigning hard for years. The family themselves have been absolutely tenacious in their fight for their rights. Uh, and then, yeah, just this sort of avalanche of support and yet, um, you know, we've just been able to get them off Christmas Island and into another form of detention. So, uh, so it is a relief for the family but it's not nearly enough and, so the campaign is clearly going to have to continue because the government is hell-bent still on trying to deport this family back to danger, back to Sri Lanka, even though Priya hasn't been in the country for over 20 years, I believe, um, even though 
uh, Nadez, the, the father, is a former Tamil tiger, um, and clearly his life is in, in danger. The kids have never set foot in Sri Lanka. The government is still hell-bent on deporting this family, and that was something that Minister Hawke, the immigration minister, said that this decision to take them into community detention is not a pathway to a visa. And uh, so we have to keep on fighting. The government's digging in its, its heels and trying to uh, play to its base to talk about how uh, to let this family stay would be a signal to people smugglers, in other words, to desperate refugees that Australia would welcome them. Uh, and so instead the government wants to continue to torture this family as an example to everyone around the world um, that, yeah, if you come to Australia, you'll be brutalised like this family have been. Mm. And really, like, it's actually no change in any government policy or um, – and they're very keen to keep saying, like, yeah, that point about if we make an exception here, you know, that's the problem then it becomes um, – it opens up the idea that everyone's going to get an exception from the rules and the rules are the rules and they've been assessed so many times and never been found to be genuine refugees. So that kind of question um, then takes us to the fact that they they are Tamils. And I guess, Aaron, I mean, this is <laughs> so much of your um, campaigning and activism is about trying to bring the um, experience of Tamil refugees and the experience of Tamils um, at the hands of the Sri Lankan government um, to more people's attention. So I wonder if you could just say something about why you understand it not to be safe um, for them to be returned to Sri Lanka and kind of what some of the context for that, because I think people have very little um, knowledge of what you would describe as a genocidal project by the Sri Lankan government. Tamils uh, are an oppressed group uh, in Sri Lanka. Uh, since the British left the island, uh, there has been a genocidal, uh, you know, it started with discriminatory policies uh, towards the, the Tamils and then turned into a, a genocidal uh, onslaught uh, from the 80s onwards. Uh, tens of thousands of Tamils were killed by the Sri Lankan uh, government. And um, in response to Sri Lankan government's uh, attacks against the Tamils, um, Tamil youth resorted to uh, armed struggle. And uh, the armed struggle was there till 2009, till the military uh, crushed it, uh, uh, you know, using... Uh, using um, yeah, well, you know, coming up with the final solution to wipe out the the resistance, and in the process, they uh, murdered uh, over one hundred thousand Tamils. Tens of thousands of Tamils were forcibly uh, disappeared. Uh, many journalists were killed. A lot of Sinhalese uh, supporters uh, were murdered by the the Rajabaksha regime. And over the last uh, twelve years. Uh, Sri Lankan government has continued to maintain the genocidal agenda. Uh, they, uh, there is a military occupation in the, the Tamil areas. Uh, for every six Tamil, uh, there is an army member present. Uh, they are continuing to grab Tamil lands. Tamil political prisoners uh, continue to be uh, detained. Uh, those who were arrested under the Prevention of Terrorism Act in the 80s and 90s continue to be uh, in prison. Um, and, and there are 
you know, lots of uh, military harassment, militaries involved in everyday life. Um, they still have uh, torture camps, according to organizations like International Truth and Justice Project. Uh, torture is still being practiced in Sri Lanka. Now, over the last 12 years, um, we had various governments, you know, the since uh, till 2015, the Rajabakshas uh, were in power, and then uh, Sri Sena uh, administration was in power for five years. And last year, the Rajabakshas uh, returned to power. And these Gotabaya Rajabaksha, who's the president of Mahinda Rajabaksha, uh, who was uh, the president of Sri Lanka back in mm -hmm. 2009, he is known for murdering tens of thousands of Tamils. He's now the president of Sri Lanka. And the army generals who were responsible for war crimes are in key positions of power. Um, and so it's quite dangerous for Tamils in Sri Lanka now. Uh, and the Australian government has uh, basically been saying uh, it's quite safe for Tamils. They've been saying that uh, Tamils are not being tortured. Uh, it's it's all back to normal. Tamils can go back to Sri Lanka. And, and the way they have done it is through this uh, country report, which the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade prepares. And that report just three weeks ago has been rubbished by uh, uh, a UK tribunal. Um, and uh, the UK tribunal has basically said Australian government shouldn't be using this DFAT report to assess Tamil asylum claims. Um, and this is the report that has denied uh, Tamils uh, a protection visa. This is the report that's been used to deport hundreds of Tamil asylum seekers, possibly to their death. I think it's just one of those, uh, the barbarities of capitalism as an international system that, I mean, there are so many examples, but this one seems particularly kind of hidden um, in terms of the how recent the major massacre that you described then happened and how much ongoing um, repression and, yeah, a, a, a project of genocide that has been, you know, gone unrecognized internationally. And I wonder, Aaron, if you could just say something about why you think that is, because basically every major government and the United Nations and a bunch of NGOs internationally have all kind of been in denial of this genocidal project. I'll try my best to uh, comment on this. Um, basically, there was a peace process uh, from uh, 2002 onwards between the Tamil Tigers and the, the Sri Lankan government. Uh, this peace process looked very promising. Um, it seemed like there was going to be compromises made and, and as a result, uh, the, the armed struggle was going to come to an end. Uh, but then international powers uh, played a role in undermining that uh, peace process, which led to the final war. Uh, you know, uh, organizations like Permanent People's Tribunal, which investigated what went uh, on in 2009, found that uh, United Kingdom and the United States uh, were complicit 
uh, in the genocide. You had governments like Australia, Canada, and many other European uh, countries uh, arresting uh, Tamils uh, for supporting the uh, the the liberation cause uh, and um, and basically silencing the Tamil community while the killings uh, went on. Uh, and my view is that. Uh, straight, uh, you know, countries like Australia, UK, US had geopolitical interest in that region in order to uh, fulfill their geopolitical interests, uh, which is having control over the, the Indian Ocean. Uh, they supported uh, the Sri Lankan government and they continue to support the, the Sri Lankan government for the same purpose. Mm. And I think, you know, it, as a socialist podcast, we would um, characterise some of that as, you know, part of an imperialist project as well. And I think that flows into, um, Liz, what I wanted to ask you about in terms of an explanation behind or a, a kind of way of understanding the Australian refugee policy overall because it is one of the most um, barbaric, I mean, yeah, it's hard to compare internationally mm the appalling treatment of refugees, but far-right organisations campaign in their own countries like Britain, for example, to say we want our refugee policy to be more like Australia. How has it ended up like this and how, how could we explain some of that, I guess? The, the far-right have lauded Australia's refugee policy. They talk about the Australia model and it's the far-right in the UK. So UKIP's Nigel Farage talked about how heroic Tony Abbott's speech was when he went to England and talked about how Australia has deterrence at the heart of its policy, that it tows the boats back, that it imprisons people on on uh, isolated islands. This was heroic. And it's not just the British far right, but also in Holland, in France, all throughout Europe. They, the far right see uh, Australia's example as something they want to emulate. So it's gotten to this stage where Literal Nazis think that Australia has the the answer for them. Uh, it's gone this bad because there's been a, I guess a, what do you call it, a cascading mm. um, and a race to the bottom. And it's been both the Liberal and the Labor Party that have participated in this horrific race where they've tried to up each other on how brutal they can be to refugees. So. It began with the Labor Party in 1994 when they introduced mandatory detention in the first place. It really catapulted to the right under Howard in 2001 with the whole Tampa incident and the Pacific solution. But the election of a Labor government was no answer for refugees. With the Rudd government and the Gillard government, we also saw things like the PNG deal where refugees who uh, arrived by boat were said they were never going to be resettled in Australia. That was Labor Party that introduced that policy that reopened Manus Island uh, and the Nauru detention centres. And they do this. They, they've, they've participated in this race to the bottom because it's been useful for the Australian political class. Mm. Bashing refugees has been good for scapegoating, for deflecting attention away from the government and from the rich in terms of social ills, lack of funding for public uh, services or unemployment or whatever it might be, or it's created a really nasty environment in society, like a, a very um, a, a situation where social solidarity is not encouraged, where the, instead it's all about strengthening borders and cages and prisons and mm. 
and clearly this is good for them to be able to strip away the rights of everybody. If they can get away with treating vulnerable refugees like this, then uh, it makes it so much easier to take away the rights of everybody else. Um, so they've definitely benefited the political class from this anti-refugee policy, uh, and we need to be clear about that if we're going to resist it. Yeah. And you can see how important it is when the Labor Party actually shifts its, its tone. So just saying a few positive things about how this family, the, the Billa Wheeler family, should be allowed to go home to, to Bilo, shouldn't be in Christmas Island, how, how much of an impact they can have on public opinion. It's important for us to understand that the anti-refugee sentiment that exists in Australian society, the fact that we are actually in a minority on the question of refugees and opposition to mandatory detention, this is not something that has just been an organic attitude. This is something that's been cultivated from above. Liberal and Labor governments have helped to cultivate an anti-refugee sentiment. And when a, uh, a question is actually faced by the Australian public, when they actually know the faces of refugees, know their story, know what's happened to them, then that hostility can be broken away. And in particular, that the, the message about what's happening to this family can reach the the homes of millions of people in part because the Labor Party has, has, has said that this family should be allowed to stay. Mm. So you can see, you know, how culpable actually the Labor Party are with the trashing of the lives of thousands of people, the fact that um, they have allowed this to happen and they actually could play an important role in making it stop, but they, they refuse to because they, you know, don't want to give any quarter to the Liberal Party. They want to look like they're hard on borders uh, and it's all politics for them. They're prepared to play uh, politics with the lives of thousands of refugees for their own political gain. Mm. The Labor Party is still, uh, they're actually still behaving that way in terms of emphasizing uh, the similarities, the commonalities between themselves and the Liberal Party. Uh, you know, they're all over the TV in the last 24 hours amidst all of this outrage and all of this, you know, public pressure. Um, and despite them campaigning for the family to be taken out of Christmas Island, uh, they've also been simultaneously running this. Uh, you know, campaign to emphasise that they're actually the same, that they have the same policies as, as the Liberal Party and that they too support uh, mandatory detention, you know, uh, no boat arrivals and so on. Ros? Yeah. I mean, I think Liz's main point about the fact that the attitudes that um, are then reflected back in polling sometimes, although we haven't had any polls recently, are, are really um, – driven from the top. And I think if you look at Australian history, there have been periods where um, the migration of refugees has been beneficial to the Australian economy and the government, including Liberal governments, have managed to, you know, um, generate positive public opinion and community sentiment. And I think what's happened in this case potentially is that there is enough of that being mobilised by the people campaigning the back-to-below people in particular, but, you know, uh, more and more kind of public figures jumping on to say that they support this family, that that's what's happened sort of in spite of all of the, um, well, both major parties, um, as Liam said, being very much in lockstep on border protection and so on. I guess, Aaron, like in terms of um, this victory and if the campaign continues and actually the family can get home to Biloela, what does it mean in terms of the broader um, campaign for Tamil refugees in particular and what would a victory like that mean 
for the Tamil community because I guess it's then thinking if we can win this one, um, yeah, what can we do next? And the fact that there is obviously still many Tamils um, locked up ongoing as we speak. Over the last few days, I have received so many phone calls from Tamil refugees thanking us, uh, them now realizing that, uh, you know, if they fight, they can win as well. Uh, Piria has uh, inspired so many Tamil refugees in similar situation that, uh, you know, if they're facing deportation, they can fight as well and they can uh, win as well. So, you know, Although they're in community detention, this small victory is going to give so much confidence to uh, Tamil refugees in similar situation. Now, if they uh, win this and if they end up being in Bila Bila uh, with permanent residency, uh, it'll mean that uh, we can, um, you know, we can stop the deportation of other Tamils as well. The government will think about uh, think twice about deporting uh, Tamils uh, to danger, and the the whole campaign has uh, raised awareness about uh, the the situation uh, Tamils are fleeing from. A lot of people are now talking about the the flawed uh, process against uh, Tamil asylum seekers. Uh, so, you know, this campaign uh, definitely will. Um, will have an impact on how Tamils are treated in the future. But what we want to really see is that not only Tamil refugees facing deportation, um, you know, having confidence, uh, but we want to see uh, a, a change in Australia's attitude towards refugees in general. We want to see the, the refugees in Park Hotel uh, freed. We want to see refugees, the, the tens of thousands of refugees in the community being eligible for permanent residency. And we want to see Australia abandoning its, mm. um, its, uh, its, its cruel refugee policy, you know, and, and this campaign, um, would have given a boost to everybody campaigning on the, the refugee issue. It's, it's only a start. Um, and, and we, we hope that, uh, uh, you know, this will go on to see many more wins. Yeah, and I think, yeah, it would be a massive boost. Um, and Priya's strength in particular, and I would rec highly recommend, and I'll put it in the um, notes for this episode, an article written by Ben Hillier, the pr a profile of Priya based on an interview that he did with her um, a few months ago, I think, um, and the resistance that she's shown particularly um, because I think she's sort of presented as the, the poor mother of these children and whatever, but like she is absolutely staunch, determined um, fighter and campaigner. And, and a lot of people have recognized that this situation wouldn't be what it is today without, um, yeah, her absolute um, grit and determination. And Liz, it's kind of interesting um and Aaron mentioned the Park Hotel refugees, and you've been part of the campaign um, along with the campaign against racism and fascism here in Melbourne around the first at the Mantra Hotel and now at the Park Hotel, that there are still men locked up right in the heart of the city of Melbourne um, who don't have 
that 500,000 signatures on a petition, a whole town campaigning for them. I mean, people saying that maybe the Liberals are finding some compassion, <laughs> you know, and not recognising the actual, um, yeah, all of the factors yeah. that have led to this situation. But not every refugee is treated as, uh, you know, the model kind of hardworking potential Austra- Australian that every other Australian should aspire to be who's happy to work in an abattoir in regional Victoria and regional Queensland. Like what about all of the other refugees in the campaign that continues at the park hotel and, and to shut down all forms of detention? Well, I think uh, it shouldn't be counterposed. Like it shouldn't be that uh, people feel like it's unfair that this family gets all this attention. Some of the, there's been some comments online about, you know, people are just being driven by the media. What about all the other refugees? You're just playing along with the media game by caring about this family. Mm. But uh, I think that's a, yeah, really counterproductive approach. I think the task, as Aaron outlined, is to connect up the huge sympathy that exists now for this this family and to, to broaden it out, to, to generalise and say, well, it's not just this family that are facing deportation and detention, but it's many other hundreds in detention currently on the mainland and uh, all the the Tamil refugees have been rejected. It's not just Priya and Nadez, but you know, many, many thousands have been deported back to, to danger because of the government's refusal to recognise that Tamils are unsafe in Sri Lanka because they're geopolitical relationships and they want to stop the boats and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, that, that's the real task is to, to connect up the, the huge support that exists for this family with um, a broader fight and that's something that the you know the Labor Party are desperately trying to avoid that's why they've gone you know a bit silent now that the community is out of Christmas Island and is a community detention because the reason why they can't be given visas and and, and a permanent uh, protection is because of a common policy of Labor and the Liberals that anyone who comes to Australia by boat will never be resettled in Australia so unless the, gov- the, the Labor Party is prepared to shift its policy, then it can only go so far in support of this family without looking like total hypocrites. Um, but it's not the first time that, you know, when we think about the support for this family and how it can potentially generate support for the refugee campaign as a whole, we think about the, the situation with baby Asha a couple of years ago when, um, you know, a baby was brought from Nauru who had, you know, refugees in the camp there and suffered burns and had to be medevaced to, to the Brisbane Children's Hospital and the huge campaign of support that developed around that baby um, to stop her from being deported back to to hell, to d- the detention facility on, on Nauru, the refusal of the doctors to cooperate with the government, the big community support it actually helped to generate a broader movement around let them stay, let the refugees who are threatened with deportation to stay in Australia. So, yeah, it's, um, it's good that this family have got so much attention and we need to um, make sure that in all of our comments we're talking about how there are many, many other thousands that are facing um, similar precarity and, you know, torturous conditions. Yeah. I think this is important because the, a lot of the uh, – you know, discussion around the family at the moment has been around trying to pressure the minister into using ministerial discretion to allow the family uh, to stay here. And that's fed by the Labor Party who say that as well, because as you say, they can't 
they don't you know they don't have no intention of changing their laws or their policies uh, and so it all becomes focused on you know the minister should just find his heart and use ministerial discretion to allow this particular case to be resolved but that just leaves open the question of the thousands of other people that Liz just referred to who are you know silently uh, undergoing very similar hell uh, and it's really important i think that people you know who are campaigning in solidarity with with refugees and people in detention that we understand that 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 what's needed here is not just you know ministerial discretion but a wholesale tearing down of the entire edifice of anti-refugee policies and structures that have been built up over decades in this country and that you know that is a big radical task that we're fighting for mm. Mm. Can I just say on one thing around the family being a model family uh one thing that we do want to highlight which we've already sort of said tonight is that they are a model family in that they've fought and so mm. many refugees are, are uh, browbeaten by kind of do-gooders, the sort of legal industry and, 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 and so on, like to, to shut up, to not fight, to, to just try and put their head down and hope for the best. But that's not something that Priya has allowed to happen. She's fought every step of the way and it's given an example of that actually if you make a fuss then you can actually rally support around you and fighting to every moment they've tried to deport them, refusing to go easily, going limp, <laughs> being forced, mm. you know, like all of that has has been key to keeping the, the family in, in the country. And I, I think that hopefully that's also been an example to to refugees across the country that um, you can inspire others and you can also make it hard for the government to get away with its plans. Yeah, I, I just I just want to make a quick point as well. Basically, um, uh, reiterating the things that uh, Ross and uh, Liz said, um, Piria is the one who led this campaign all the way through. Obviously, we had a lot of supporters in the community uh, backing Piria, but Piria is the one who led this campaign. If it wasn't for Piria fighting. Uh, this campaign wouldn't have come this far. And one example that is uh, on uh, the, the Red Flag article written by Ben Nilier as well is once uh, Taronika was in a similar situation uh, mm. in MITRE detention center where she was vomiting, um, you know, she had fever and the, the IHMS doctors were not willing to, the circle guards were not willing to give her uh, medications for it. And what she did was she went and smashed the, uh, the, the computer in the room. And as a result, mm. they gave her medications. This is how she has fought along the way, you know, and, and that's why um, she has come this far with this campaign and, and refugees should draw inspiration from it. Mm. Yeah, it's really important. And I guess I wanted to finish just by asking you both um, about kind of your you know, you've been campaigning for so long around this issue and if anything in the last 20 years or in the time you've been campaigning around refugees, like this, the situation politically has um, got worse. Um, the situation for Tamils has not improved, Aaron. Like what is it that keeps you going in this struggle as an activist and what would you say to other people who are who are kind of new to getting involved in, in campaigning around refugee rights? Like what drives you to keep, fighting this fight um that's a 
<laughs> I, I, I don't know. I just keep on doing it because people like Liz um, uh, force me to do it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, Look, I've I see I, I see the connection between the injustices that I faced as a young child to the injustices refugees face to the the injustices we all face in society, um, and uh, and and for me, uh, this is about the system uh, that is creating uh, all these uh, issues, the capitalist system that is responsible for exploitation uh, in workplaces, uh, environment uh, uh, being uh, destroyed. Uh, to refugees being mistreated uh, in these concentration camps um, and, and, and the wars that refugees flee from as well. It's all connected and, 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 and you know, and for me, uh, it's not just about freeing refugees. You know, we can free one refugee. We may be able to free 100 refugees, but uh, the system will continue to create more refugees in order for us to see an end to all the problems. We've got to get rid of the, the source of the problem, which is the, the capitalist system. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree with you, <laughs> and I'm sure Liz does as well. Liz, do you want to add anything? Or Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, we have to fight uh, the many injustices of the system and the refugee question in Australia is one of the sharp edges of the brutality of the capitalist system, but it's not the only one. Uh, but it is something that is important to organize a movement around it's uh firstly we do need a movement we need more than just charity and and kind of all the individual support that people give to this or that refugee we need a political movement um and building a political movement for for refugee rights is about taking on the political establishment and that means we need a movement that's clear about who our enemies are and it's not just minister hawk or peter dudden or tony abbott it's also, you know, Julia Gillard, it's also um, Anthony Albanese, it's the entire uh, political class, the, the major parties that we're, we're fighting back against. Um, that's key um, politics that need to inform that movement and nothing is going to change unless we build collective resistance. The Just sort of asking nicely, writing letters is insufficient. We need to mobilise the minority of supporters that, do exist out there for refugee rights on the streets to create political havoc for the government and to make it totally untenable for the Labor Party to continue to support this brutality. Uh, and that means also direct action. One of the things around Priya's case was we also attempted to stop her deportation when she was being, her and her family were being deported from the Broadmeadows Detention Centre. Um, mm. They were on route to being taken to Sri Lanka and you know, people rushed out onto the tarmac, tried to stop the um, the plane from leaving alongside Priya's um, own resistance. And all of that created precious minutes, actually, for there to be an urgent um, injunction in the federal court to stop her deportation. We need people who are prepared to put their bodies on the line in support of refugee rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of all of this fight is, is against a yeah, broader agenda, I guess, of our government that that is attempting to create an atmosphere in our society of brutality and hostility that we all suffer from. We all are weakened when the government gets away with treating refugees like this. It makes it easier to strip people of their civil liberties, to lock, you know, construction workers up for refusing to cooperate with 
the various commissions attempting to weaken their unions. You know, it, all of all of us are, are, are hurt by the um, normalisation of this brutality in Australian society. So, so yeah, so it's part of, of fighting get back against the system and defending the interests of working class people as a whole. It's yeah. a hard fight, and the, the the refugee question, you know, we're we're really up against it, and. The, the point is to be um, as tenacious as Priya is in in the fight to not give up, um, you know, that to, to have a sense of the gravity that people's lives are, are genuinely on the line. It matters what people do um, and not to just be throw your hands up with helplessness and to resign yourself to the situation. That's what I think, you know, is important to keep us going, that that, that just that hurts everybody's um, interests and we have to we have to be prepared to keep on fighting even when it's pretty dark. Mm-hmm. Yep, and if you're listening to this and think, okay, I've, I've got to do something, um, particularly if you're listening to this and you live in Perth because the family will be in Perth now, um, it seems, for the next few weeks at least, um, unless things change, the campaign will very much be centred there and there are activists and socialists are organising, um, uh, yeah, a number of different kind of uh, components of that campaign, and I'll put some links for people to follow up about that. But also in Melbourne, there's a refugee, um, another protest to say this is not enough. Community detention is still detention happening on uh, Saturday, this Saturday coming, and I'll have the information for that and uh, highly encourage people to come along and get involved in the campaign and also, I mean, Aaron and Liz are both socialists and so am I and so is Liam and that idea that we have to uh, connect the struggles of refugees with all of the oppression that is experienced under capitalism and think about the politics that are required um, to uh, absolutely um, tear down all of these systems and structures of oppression for good, not just um, for one family at a time is really important and again listen to some other episodes if you enjoyed this discussion or if you want to find out more about what it means to be a revolutionary socialist and thank you so much Aaron I know extremely busy with this campaign and Liz as well um, doing a million things um, for spending the time with us on Red Flag Radio thank you for having me yeah important discussion to have Cheers, comrades, and thanks, Liam. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. 